0: All right, I already introduced myself as an elder. I have to be a pastor here as well, one of the pastoral team, and I'm really glad to welcome you. Welcome online as well, those of you that are watching live or this week. Uh, grateful that you join us that way. Uh, I just want to uh, get to this in just a second, but uh, I want to thank a couple of other elders who have termed out this last year, Bruce Broughton and Justin Peel. Thank you guys so much for your service to this church and to Jesus. You've led so well. We'll miss you on our team, but it's great to take that break as well. So blessings to you. Um, I want to catch you up on something that uh, if you've been around Copper Hills for five or six months, you'll know that we've been doing this. But if you're new to us, you won't know this so well. Uh, Last fall, uh, we began a campaign to raise funds to close in the plaza area outside. And uh, on a morning like this, do we need a closed-in plaza or what? Right? So, But it's not about a closed-in plaza. It is about moving uh, the vision that we think Jesus has given us to create space here in this community for our community to gather. And that's just additional gathering space that we can use throughout the year. So, uh, last October or so, we presented the cost of doing that was uh, $1.9 million dollars. And we just simply had a conversation together and said, do we want to do this together? And if we do, maybe we could see how much uh, we could raise together. No pressure, but let's just see what, what you might feel God's asking you to do. Well, this is such a cool thing. Like, we have been able to raise and pledge and have been given 1.58 million of that 1.9. That Yeah. That means that we're within 320,000 dollars of getting to this goal that we had. And I got to tell you, I, I, I tell people all the time, I am the pastor of the most generous group of people on planet earth. And that's you. And you're generous because of the goodness of Jesus and you honor him that way. So thank you for being part of that. All right. So no perfect people. Uh, what is that about? Well, some of you might have noticed that as you walk up to the plaza, there's a sign right out here. And uh, this is what that sign looks like. If you've missed it, you want to take a look. Uh, I got to tell you, over and over again, I meet people who see the sign and they'll go, well, I guess I can't go to this church. <laughs> no, 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 you can Every one of us can. I know you. Like, <laughs> you're not perfect. <laughs> uh, but what you don't know is where that sign maybe came from. Uh, About maybe 15 years or so ago, I was reading a book by that title and the idea was it was written by a guy who said, hey, I think Jesus was about reaching everybody because everybody's imperfect and everybody's welcome where Jesus is around. And so that kind of stuck with me and it kind of caught my attention. I didn't know that it would catch my heart and it did eight years ago. Eight years ago, we were in the middle of construction of this particular facility in a catty corner of the the kids' ministry area. And we were uh, at the place where the concrete was up and the styrofoam walls were up. And we had a blessing one night. A freelance artist came by and wanted to express his artistic interest by painting graffiti on the walls of our building. Now, he had a particular style. It's kind of his thing or her thing, whoever it is. We never really... You know, we're able to give credit to this person for doing this. But they would, uh, you know, there was a pentagram here and a sexual symbol over here and these kinds of things. This was just apparently this person's style of art. Uh, And, uh, well, this is also what was here just beside the center doors that you might have come in. That's what was painted. It caught my attention. It took my breath away when I first saw it. Because, no, this this is the place where Jesus is honored, where he's first and foremost. He's over everything. It couldn't be anything different than that. And here's the first emotion, after I'm kind of aghast with seeing it, is I start to feel the red light of anger go off in me. I am ticked off. Who would do something like that? Like, this is a church. They knew that it was a church. Like, who does that kind of thing? And the more I stewed, the more upset I got. And I said, I'm taking care of this. So we're under construction. I went through some of the subcontractor stuff, and I found two spray bombs, black and brown. And I'm spraying this thing out, back and forth, cover the thing up. I stand back from it and go, wow. And then a thought crossed my mind. Clarion, crystal clear. Brad... Just how perfect do people need to be in order to be welcomed? And I thought, oh, I wonder if that's just for me like a slogan or like a Christian idiom that everybody's welcome and everybody's imperfect and it doesn't matter what your story is because you're more than your story and nobody's irredeemable. And everybody, everybody has the opportunity to experience the incredible love of Jesus Christ, and it'll change your life. And then I start to think, like, do I really believe that? Why am I so upset over somebody doing that? So I rifled around some more subcontractors, boxes of stuff, and I found a white spray bomb. And uh, this is what I wrote over top of that. And honestly... I wrote it more for myself than anybody would see it because I do believe that. You see, I'm one of those imperfect people. You too? That was really unconvincing, honestly. (laughs) We are, right? We know our story. We know the things we've done and the things we've thought and the trouble we've gotten ourselves into and... We long to be accepted by a God. That we haven't reached a place of being irredeemable. That there's still room for us to be brought back into a loving friendship with the God of the universe. We do believe that. I learned something that, for me, that is so much more than just this statement or, you know, a thing I painted on the wall. I think it reflects the heart of our Savior. This morning, I want to take you to an encounter. It's a graphic, emotional encounter that Jesus has with someone. And we don't even know how it changed the person's life. We don't have the rest of this person's story. We don't even know what happened in the moments following this encounter. But when you capture the story, it's, it's graphic and it's emotional. And maybe we can just put ourselves someplace in that story. So if you want to follow along, we're going to look at a passage uh, from the book of John. You can click do it in version or whatever electronic form you have, or if you brought a paper Bible with you, you'll see it under the tab, John. Uh, I really think John, this is one of Jesus' close friends, I really think John was there. I think he saw this unfold. He doesn't say that he was. He doesn't identify himself. In fact, some have speculated this doesn't actually belong in the Bible, but I think it does. And uh, it's just this wonderful story. So let's look at this a little bit and see a bit of the encounter of what happened. This is how it starts. It says, Then they all went home. What's that? Well, very quickly... Uh, Jesus had traveled from the northern part of Israel down to Jerusalem for one of the three annual festivals that every male Jew would be expected to go to. This was the feast or the festival of tabernacles. And for the last few days, Jesus had been in the temple court, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a second, just teaching people. He had sent everybody home, apparently, at some point during the night before And then he goes up to the Mount of Olives. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, probably stayed there overnight. Jesus was known to do that kind of thing. And then at dawn, sun is rising. He heads down the uh, Mount of Olives through the Kidron Valley up to Temple Mount. He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Okay, a little bit of context. Context matters in this case. Here's what... Uh, it looks like today. A group of us just recently saw that very thing. That is the Temple Mount uh, right now. It's about a 30-acre... By the way, on a, if you're watching this live, you're not going to see my like Darth Vader saber, like Jedi lightsaber here, but I'm pointing some things out here. So this is about 30-acre... Uh, Walled area. It was the Jewish most holy, holy place. It was where God had presented and shown Himself in unique kinds of ways to His people. But today, it's this is the Dome of the Rock. This is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's controlled by Muslims. That's their third most sacred place. Uh, And uh, this is Mount Moriah, where it's thought that uh, probably. Abraham was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, so it's really sacred, sacred place. What I want to draw your attention to is this is the southern wall, and there are steps right in here. Let's show a closer look at that. So these are the steps. You can see some closed-up gates. Those gates have been closed for like a thousand years or more. And uh, but these were the steps that in the first century Jesus would have walked. Up So down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, up those steps, through some gates, into the area that was Temple Mount. This is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. So kind of the same area. It's not exactly the same. But these are the southern steps that we just looked at. An internal portal coming out these two areas here into the court of the Gentiles. Right in this area was a place that was really sacred to the Jewish people. It's where they did their ceremonial sacrifices. It's where people would bring the sheep and doves and so on, present them to the priests. The priests would sacrifice for their sins, would bleed the sheep or the animal, put it on the altar... And that was their way of being atoned for their sins. The taller part of the building right back here was the Holy of Holies. That could only be entered one time a year by the high priest to make atonement for his own sins and the sins of the nation. This is a holy, sacred site. This area right here were markets where people could buy sheep and doves and animals to be sacrificed. And if you were a foreigner, you could go there and you could exchange your money for... Jewish money and be able to buy these animals. So it's in this area, right here, the, the courtyard of the Gentiles, that Jesus entered on that day, early in the morning, and uh, he had developed enough of a reputation within the country that when Jesus was there, crowds would gather. And that's what happens earlier this morning. Jesus enters this area, a crowd of people begin to gather around him, and he begins to teach what he has in his heart, the hope of a new covenant controversial for many, but the truth of what God was going to do through him was going to be revealed that what he was teaching was actually the truth. A resurrection of a dead person is pretty convincing. And that's what happened. So that's the story. And then this is what happens. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders who didn't trust Jesus, thought he was a charlatan, thought he wasn't telling the truth, but yet he was drawing people away from them to himself, and that made them jealous. So they're trying to take him out if they can, because they don't believe he is who he says he is. So now they're going to trap him, and this is how they do it. It says they brought a woman caught in adultery. So what we know at this point is a woman someplace in the city of Jerusalem, likely, has a sexual encounter with someone who's not her husband, and somebody saw that. Okay, so how do you see that without looking for it? I think, I think, I don't know, I think she was stalked. I think they sent agents, these religious leaders sent agents or a spy or somebody to look for her to catch her. They didn't give a flying rip about her. They wanted to put Jesus on the spot, and she was simply a tool, an object for them to do that with. We're going to find that out as it goes. So they bring her to Jesus, and they say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Hold on, time out. That means that somebody was actually watching this go down. Like, how invasive is that? That we're gonna learn some things here. There are some questions that come to mind right away. Like, here's a question Where's the dude? Right? Where's the guy? In fact, if you go to where in the Old Testament. Moses is given instructions about what to do when this kind of thing happens. Do you know what it says in Deuteronomy 20, and in Leviticus twenty ten? It says, when a man among you commits adultery. It starts with the guy. And then he and his accomplice or partner in this are to be brought before the Sanhedrin or the, 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 the body of uh, Pharisees and, and so on that, that could judge this. And because it was such a serious thing, you had to have at least two witnesses that could say, I saw it, I was there, I experienced it, I know what happened. This is actually the details. They had to agree with each other because this was a capital punishment case. But that's not what's going on here. It looks like they've just kind of staked out her place. And she's the only one there. And the guy isn't around anywhere. They've got this all wrong right from the beginning because all she is to them is an object to get to Jesus. That's how they think about her. It goes on to say, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman and guy. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order as a basis of accusing him. So if Jesus says, hey, I'm with you religious leaders, he goes crossways with the Romans because the Jews didn't have the freedom to execute a capital punishment. If he goes against them, they're reciting the laws, they understand it, and the people would get turned against Jesus. So he's in this no-win situation, except it's Jesus. Always the smartest guy in the room, all the time. And he shows it, but he's not just the smartest. He has a radically different view of people, all people, and especially this woman. It's amazing what we see happen. Let's go on. It says, but Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. We don't know what he wrote. When they kept on questioning him, now they're badgering him, right? He straightened up and said to them, Hey, let any one of you who's without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay, what's he saying? We have to understand what sin is because we often misdiagnose what it is. We think of sin as a list of behaviors that are contrary to what Jesus would have us do or what God would have us do. There's ten commandments. You don't behave in line with those. That's sin. No, it's not. Now stick with me for just a little bit here. It's really important. Okay, Those are sinful behaviors. Sin happens further upstream. It happens in our hearts. It happens in our minds. It happens in those moments where we say consciously or unconsciously, I got this, God. I don't know if I need you. I don't know if I want you in this. I've got it. I'm going to take care of it. Or we say, God, you so jacked up my life in the past. I trusted you here. I'm not trusting you there. I'm going to go do it myself. Like who, who doesn't do that on occasion, right? That's not a behavior. It'll lead to a set of behaviors, but it starts in our hearts and our souls. That's what it is. And so Jesus is saying to these guys, guys, you all know so much. Any of you that have never questioned God, walked away from God, done it yourself, been independent of him, just do your thing and don't want him involved, you go ahead and you get to do this first. Pick up a stone and toss it at her. It won't take many. And your problem will be taken care of. Now put yourself in the shoes of this woman. She already knew she was irredeemable. She believed every word that these religious leaders were saying. That she was just an object. We don't know that if the adultery thing was serial for her. We don't know if she had lost her own self esteem and self worth, and she just gave herself to any man that would show attention to her. We don't know that. And we can't surmise that. But you know something? I don't know of anybody that's decided to fall into the arms of someone who's not their spouse who goes, That was great. I, like, that really turned out well for me. A lot. Let's do it. No. It creates pain and sorrow and sadness. It does. Every time, she knew who she was. And my guess is when these guys kind of stalked her and found her, caught her in the act and leave the guy there and they bring her in, they just reinforced for her, you are irredeemable. You are beyond the pale of God's love because of not just what you do, but who you are. And Jesus is about to change her world. He's about to do something for her I don't think anyone had ever done for her before. This is how this unfolds. So he stooped down again. Like he stooped down. You got to remember who this is. This is the God of the whole universe, preeminent over everything. Before time began, he was there. He's preeminent today in all things. He stoops down to one who was irredeemable in her own mind. And he writes on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. Interesting, the older ones first. Only until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Why did the older guys leave first? This is where context comes in. Remember, court of the Gentiles... My guess is just a guess. I don't know if I'm right. Can't read too much into this, but I'm wondering when Jesus started writing in the dirt and not saying anything, where a hush fell across and everybody's trying to look in, what you writing? what you writing? what you writing? And meanwhile, in the background just a few feet away is the place where ceremonies of repentance and atonement are happening and sheep are being killed and dying for the sake of the sins of people. I recently heard a coyote or two or three get a rabbit. I've never heard that kind of shrieking before. But can you imagine the shrieks coming out from just over there? And every one of these guys had made annual trips to that very holy ground. And they had brought their sacrifice for the things they had done. And now in the background, those who maybe had heard it the most frequently realize we're on her level and she's on ours. We don't know how to deal with it. We're not about to confess it. We're not about to be honest about it. Let's leave. And they leave. And once again, reminding her of who she is because there's no apology for what they've done. They've just left her there. But Jesus has apparently written something on the dirt. For, for hundreds for sure, thousands of years almost, scholars, theologians, Bible teachers, Brad, have tried to figure out, what did he write? Write? Uh-huh. No idea till this week. Our team like our staff are on it. These are smart people who did research and dug and dug and dug and apparently this picture from antiquities was found and we know now exactly what Jesus wrote in the dust. This is what he wrote. Well, maybe not. You know what he could have written? No perfect people allowed. That's what he could have written. He finishes the story this way. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. And then this, Well, girl, then neither do I condemn you. And if we're not careful, we look at that and go, oh, okay. So he doesn't really care what she's done. Yeah, he doesn't, it doesn't matter to him. He didn't notice it. He's just so loving and gracious and kind and good and tender. He just goes, oh, shucks, you didn't mean it. No problem. Just forget about it. Nope. Because that would not be to love her. That would be to, again, minimize her. You know what would be love? To acknowledge it. And go, yeah, you, you did that. And I know that that hurt. And I know that it sticks to you. And I know that it's created a form of death in you. And I know that other people have been hurt by it. And you know something? As much as I love you, I love you too much to leave you there. So I'm going to tell you, go. And now leave the life of sin. Now... Got to remember again that definition of sin. He does not say, go, now stop being an adulteress. He doesn't say, now go and stop sleeping with guys. He doesn't. He says, go and leave a life of independence from God. Live with him. Bring him into every part of your life. Don't ignore him. Don't make decisions without him. Don't spend your money. Don't use your time. Don't use the gifts, talents, and abilities, and story and history that you have for yourself, by yourself. Involve God in it. Invite him into it. Let him be part of it. Consult with him first. When you have a decision to make, ask him what he thinks, and then wait to hear Sometimes he'll be crystal clear. Other times he won't. But keep asking. Keep coming to him. Do life with him. You know what our mission as a church family is? We want to help each other increasingly do the next minute with Jesus. So that we increasingly think like Jesus. And when we increasingly think like Jesus, we are increasingly mistaken for him. In this world that we live in. That was Jesus' idea. And he lived it out so graphically with this woman. Our sin matters to him. And he would say, nobody, nobody is free from having an independent streak in them. That will not get fully fixed till we close our eyes for the last time. Between here and there, he comes to us if we could but see ourselves as this woman. And I got, like for some of us here today, maybe this is exactly what you need to hear. You are not irredeemable. You are not. Regardless of what you've done, it matters. We're not blowing it off. But you are not irredeemable. You're imperfect. Living with a perfect God who saw our imperfection and said, I can take care of that. I will leave my perfection behind. Get this, come on. And I'm going to go and be with you imperfect. And then the perfect me, tempted in every way without sin, is going to lay down his life so that the imperfect you can be thought of and seen as perfect by a perfect God. Get out of town. That is our story. So none of us are irredeemable. All imperfect. And that's why we're welcome at the foot of a wonderful, blood-stained, rugged cross. What a story we have. So, King Jesus, there is simply none like you. You who know everything, He said, you're the smartest guy in the room all the time. You know stuff that we've not even conceived of. And then to think that you know not just stuff, but you know us, and you know the secrets in the darkest places of our lives that maybe no other human knows, but you know those. And regardless of what those are, You didn't just brush them off and go, ah, shucks, it doesn't matter. No, it matters. But that's not irredeemable for me. So if you'll place your trust in me, if you'll embrace this, I will come and I'll live in you in ways you never dreamed. But you've got to give it up. And let me do that for you. And you will do that, Jesus. So across the room today maybe somebody watching this is what they need because they woke up this morning Jesus thinking they were irredeemable something happened last week or last night that they can't fix and they can't put back together and they just think you couldn't possibly you couldn't possibly love them and call them by their name but you do and Jesus even in this moment Would they hear you call their name? And may they go and leave their life of independence from you and experience the wonder of your love. Thank you, King Jesus. Amen.